0: Thanks, John and band. It's a real, real treat to come to church and to be a guest preacher and get to tell the musicians what music they should play. Um, so we'll have Bruce Coburn tonight and Bob Marley in a jazz tune. I mean, this is just paradise for me. Um, and thank you, Kara, you did a spectacular job on paraphrasing the text for this evening. Um, The story's so powerful, it hardly needs commentary. It just needs a little pushing out, and you did that so well. Um, It's nice to be here. The substitute teacher is in. (laughs) Um, uh, I I was told by Joanne that uh, Julia Morales was bringing uh, eggs and vegetables uh, in case things didn't go well and that DVH would stand up at the end and disagree with everything I said. So I guess that's just radical hospitality, Broad Street style. Um, Let's uh, get started with this text, uh, with the prayer, and, and then we'll begin. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, God of the lost and the found, of prodigals both at home and far away, startle us with your truth, transform us with your generosity, give yourself to us through these words and meditations, even as we offer ourselves to you through the same. Amen. We make it a habit to redeem things here at Broad Street and that includes redeeming stories in the Bible. Stories such as this one about a prodigal son a waiting father and his elder brother. Stories that have been used by some to suggest that God will only be gracious to us when we meet certain contractual obligations. That you have to earn inclusion and belonging. I embraced the Christian faith when I heard this story many many years ago. Upon returning from a semester living in Germany while a junior in high school. I was fluent then but I'm not now in case you're wondering. (laughs) Homesickness, culture shock, and a newfound awareness of my own littleness and vulnerability had me looking for security and significance in something larger and more lasting than the values of my family, my peer group, or my culture. I found those things in the God presented to me in the evangelical church my family attended. And I embraced this God with enthusiasm, as we usually embrace things that make us feel safe and significant. I think we've got a bit of that and our political environment at the moment. But once you start living with someone, God in this instance, you see things about them that you never saw before. Has anyone had that experience? (laughs) Though I thought this God was larger than the values of my culture, this God was, in fact, an embodiment of some of its most problematic features. Perhaps the most problematic feature of all was its obsession with assigning worth and value strictly on the basis of performance. After living with this God for a few years, I felt like I was in a never-ending performance review and that my identity as a child of God was constantly being assessed. nerve wracking to say the least, especially since the consequences for failing the assessment are somewhat dire. The story of the prodigal son, in my experience, provided the infrastructure for this religious system. If I wanted the blessings of heaven, represented by the father in the story, then I had to repent of the temptations of hell, represented by the prodigal son. The lost in the story were the damned, and the found were those who fulfilled their end the contract. Ironically, the very story that seemed to justify this scheme of things actually upon closer reading undermined it. It did not teach that my identity was rooted in a conditional contract that I had to uphold. It taught that it was rooted in an unconditional covenant that God himself upheld. A simple look at the literary context of this parable, and the text is printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along, will tell you that it's about the identity of Jesus's father, and the nature of his father's kingdom, not the contours of a religious system. It's a kingdom parable and an identity parable, not a salvation parable. In verse 11, the parable begins with the words, Jesus continued, which is to say this parable is an extension of the theme that Luke, the author of this gospel, has already introduced in the two parables that have come before it. In those parables, God is likened to a shepherd seeking a lost sheep and a woman seeking a lost coin. Here that theme continues with God being likened to a father seeking a lost son. And when the sheep, coin, and son are found, a public celebration ensues. This structure is common to all three parables, with the point being that God seeks what is already his and invites others to celebrate lavishly when that lost thing is then found. Any other use of the parable, for instance, suggesting it teaches a salvation system, or that God is a man, misses the point, and by so doing misidentifies the God of Jesus. But you've got to belong to someone before you can ever be lost to someone. That's an important to note in this parable. You can't be lost anywhere if you don't first belong somewhere. That's why it's important for our parable to first establish a context for belonging. And that's why our parable begins with a father, his two sons, and a conflict in the home. And what a conflict it is. The younger of the two sons asks his father for his share of the estate. Ancient readers of this story would have immediately understood that the younger son is not making a polite request for funds. He is, in effect, saying to his father, Your existence is an obstacle to my goals. Your only value to me is in what you can do for me. And what you can do for me is give me my inheritance while you are still alive so I don't have to wait until you're dead. It's a conversation many parents, in one way or another, have had with their children. <laughs> It's also a pretty dark way to start a story about the good news of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching. But it gets worse, and it only gets worse because Luke wants to tell us something about the Father that can't be communicated in any other way. Luke then, like a creative artist, moves us step by step further away from the home. He uses physical distance from the home as a metaphor for the increasing relational alienation and thus lostness Of the younger son from his father. My apologies. I'm a weepy guy. I don't know what happens. I only do it in public. It's really (laughs) embarrassing. The gravitas of the moment just kind of overwhelms me and I don't know what to do. So don't feel uncomfortable for me. Um, That would make me feel worse. So anyways, um, right. He sets off for a distant country. Where would you go? if you wanted to engage in wild living, Uh, shortly after his request, and uh, there he squanders his wealth. Luke is moving us further and further away from the home, eventually spending everything he has. At that point, a famine sets in, and where there's a famine, work becomes increasingly scarce. With few opportunities for income, the son is soon unable to meet his most basic needs, and he starts to get desperate. This desperation leads him to put his well-being in the hands of a non-Jew, who, wouldn't you know it, can't find anything better for a young Jewish man to do than to feed pigs. This narrative of distance and alienation from his home and his father finally comes to its climax when the young son is so hungry and destitute that he longs to fill his stomach with animal fodder. No doubt the pig farmer sees what is happening, as do others, but still we are told in verse 16 that no one gives him anything. I'm not sure we can imagine what a dark picture this is. Kara's brought us closer to the contemporary sense of what this is like, but in order to understand what's going on here, you have to read the story through the eyes and the ears of those who originally heard it. In addition to his destitution and neglect, the young son has come into contact with unclean animals. For a Jew, this is very dark indeed. It would have made the younger son unclean as well, and therefore, untouchable by other Jews and an abomination to God. He wasn't just hygienically unclean, he was cosmically unclean. He was, in his own mind, and pardon my Scottish, not just covered in shite, he was shite. Such that he was psychologically willing to even entertain the idea of eating the food that the pigs were eating. There's a psychological term like that. For that, he's internalizing his own filth and owning it for himself. This is dark. This reality, no doubt, factored significantly into his estimations of worthlessness. And at this point, becoming a servant certainly would have been an upgrade to his identity and his experience. And so, in verses 17 to 19, Luke informs us that the younger son came to his senses. My evangelical upbringing always used to refer to this part of the narrative as a description of repentance. That, however, makes the story into a salvation narrative that has conditionality and performance at its center. Along with it, and along with it, a moral individualism that says we are responsible for no one but ourselves. We see that same moral individualism written into our social policies, our tax codes, and our healthcare provisions. It is deeply at odds with the Christian vision of the human person as a relational being created in the image of a triune God. And it is not what this parable is about. Granted, there's a turning toward God in the narrative, but I would hardly call it repentance. Honestly, it sounds more like a cold exercise and cost benefit analysis to me. So the younger son, believing he has forfeited his identity as a son, decides that the only way he might be able to return to his father's house is as a servant. Just as he reduced his father to a function at the outset of the parable, he now reduces himself to a function here. He calculates his worth based on his performance and he calculates his worth at a severe discount. I do this often, exchanging my identity for a function. It's hard not to do in a culture where economic exchange determines so many aspects of our lives. We do it in those secret dialogues we have with ourselves, walking down the sidewalk before we fall asleep we're standing in front of a mirror and we do and when we do that we are like the lost son bargaining for value like a commodity in a market so he drafts a new relational contract in his head he's violated the son contract so he drafts a servant contract instead exchanging his identity as a son for the identity of the servant it's probably the only time in the bible where being a servant is a bad thing. (laughs) He rehearses the terms of the contract in his mind like a sinner's prayer as a means to fulfill a religious condition for acceptance and belonging, and he sets off for his father's house. (laughs) At this point in verse 20, the father enters the scene. Luke uses spatial metaphors again to remind us of the distance between the father and his son in case we forget. It says that he saw him while he was still a long way off. Any good artist uses details with intention and it repays us to pay attention to them carefully. A distance the father immediately takes the initiative to reduce. The action here involves all kinds of verbs. If you look at your text, there's seeing, there's filling, there's running, there's throwing, there's kissing. The father makes an ass of himself in this public display of inclusion. For in ancient Palestine, it was considered undignified for a grown man to run. I wish it were that way today. Uh, Let alone for the purposes of embracing someone who had brought public shame upon his house. This is not the portrait of a God who is waiting for conditions to be fulfilled. Jesus' father is an odd father indeed. The father is filled with compassion when he sees his child. It's a reflexive and immediate movement. Seeing is immediately followed by filling. Luke suggests that there's no deliberation, no internal dialogue about what to feel or how to manage the situation emotionally. I don't know if compassion would be the first emotion I would feel in this instance. Self-validation might come more immediately to mind, along with the timely placement of the words, I told you so, but that is not what happens here. At this point, even in the face of these overwhelming gestures of belonging, the younger son feels it necessary to pull out and read his prepared statement, telling his father, quote, he is no longer worthy to be called his son. Luke comments on the value of this tactic by having the father interrupt the son's statement so he cannot complete it. Especially the part where he offers himself as a servant. You'll see, there's the full statement before he gets up to go back to his father and when he begins the statement, it's never completed. By interrupting the prepared statement of the son, we are forced to stay with the character of the father who, no longer listening to his son, is barking orders to the servants in his house in order to hastily arrange a public celebration. The final stage of the parable is here, where the audience is informed that what is lost has been found and where they are implicitly asked, won't you celebrate with me? Everyone is welcome. And of course, the celebration involves a table, guests, Food, drink, and music, just like a service of worship. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.